This is your gateway to the latest trends in the Gulf, bringing you exclusive insights and thought-provoking discussions. Welcome to AB Majlis, an Arabian business podcast. You can find our weekly episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And for more exclusive content, subscribe to us on arabianbusiness.com. Welcome back to another episode of the AB Majlis podcast. I'm your host, Tala Michelle Isa, and senior reporter at Arabian Business. Today we'll be diving into geopolitics, more specifically the expansion of BRICS, an intergovernmental organization created to facilitate deeper ties between member states and cooperate on economic expansion, including trade. The bloc was initially established in 2006 to include Brazil, Russia, India and China. South Africa then joined in 2010 and as of January 2024, it was expanded to include Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The group's expansion to include several key Middle Eastern nations was widely seen as a major geopolitical development that could reshape um, global power dynamics. In the studio with me today is geopolitical risk expert Nicolas Michelon, partner at strategic advisory firm Confluence Consultants, uh, who will weigh in on the expansion's strategic implications and its potential impacts on reshaping global trade in the coming years. Welcome to AP Majlis. Thank you for having me, Tala. Thank you for being here today. So to start off, let's maybe talk um, a, little, a little briefly about your background in geopolitics and how you advise businesses in the region. Sure. So basically, I'm a partner at uh, the, this, uh, this consultancy called uh, Confluence Consultants. So we are based in Dubai. I'm actually based out of Paris. So I travel back and forth between the two continents. Uh, what we do is that we advise uh, multinational co companies on how to navigate geopolitical uncertainties. Uh, we focus mostly on what some people call global south type of companies. So companies coming from Southeast Asia, the South uh, Asian continent, the Middle East, the GCC in particular, uh, increasingly Africa, uh, hopefully in the near future, Latin America as well. Uh, we are helping companies from those geographies try to understand the complexities of the geopolitical environment and how geopolitics affects their business, how they can uh, mitigate geopolitical risk. We help them with strategic scenarios. We help them anticipate the type of risk, pick up what we call weak signals of, you know, uh, impending problems that could be affecting their operations. So that's a, this is what we do. I come from a macroeconomic background. I was mostly in the Asia-Pacific region for about 15 years in Hong Kong, Singapore and Japan. Uh, started off as a macroeconomist and then became portfolio manager before I turned into a geopolitical risk. Amazing. Such an interesting background. So I guess you're the perfect person to bring in today to talk about this. Um, one topic that seems, you know, particularly interesting to me and a lot of our readers and probably listeners would be what Saudi Arabia brings to the table economically when, you know, with the expanded BRICS bloc. Sure. I mean, the, the addition uh, of Saudi Arabia in this first phase of expansion of BRICS, because it's the first phase, and I would like to emphasize on this. Okay, uh, we'll we get can, to that later. <laughs> we can certainly uh, expect, uh, you know, future phases of expansion going down the road. Uh, in this first phase of expansion, Saudi Arabia is bringing basically three aspects, and not those are not only economic aspects. The, the most obvious economic aspect is that it brings size. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a market unto itself. Mm -hmm. We're talking about 30 plus million inhabitants. So amongst all those new countries, it's one of the countries that, bigs, that brings the biggest size. Of course, uh, nowhere near Egypt, which is much bigger in terms of domestic market, but it does bring that size. What I do find interesting in the fact that uh, BRICS uh, extended this invitation to the Saudi Arabia so early in its development phase is that Saudi Arabia brings two strategic assets to BRICS. First of all, the fact that it's one of the 
maybe contested leader, but definitely one of those uh, of the Muslim world. So having one of the leaders, political leaders, religious leaders of the Muslim world within BRICS uh, goes a long way, especially for the likes of China, uh, uh, in terms of reshuffling the power cards uh, in the world. Um, another aspect is that uh, Saudi Arabia is was up until recently one of the oldest and uncontested uh, ally of the U.S. in the region. So having such a strong and historical ally of the U.S. being part of this other group, which has as one of its objectives the de-dollarization of mm -hmm. the world economy, uh, it says a lot in terms of how much the likes of China and Russia as well have been able to reshuffle those cards and to basically capitalize on retreating U.S. influence uh, since I would say more or less the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. So I think for those three reasons, uh, the fact that Saudi Arabia was invited in that club says a lot. Mm -hmm. So when you when you mentioned before, I really want to get into a lot of different things, but I was very interested when you said in the early stages of development. So um, who like which countries do you expect to maybe at some point join the bloc? I would be surprised if we do not have another uh, major economy in North Africa. Okay. Uh, joining uh, in, a, in a further expansion. Uh, other sub-Saharan African countries will have to be joining. Uh, BRICS cannot make sense if they cannot incorporate more sub-Saharan African countries because part of what the BRICS is all about is also creating a club of countries that produce critical raw materials and control the supply chains of critical raw materials. So they will need more of those mm -hmm. African countries. Latin America, uh, BRICS will be knocking on that door again uh, very soon. They already have Not Brazil. Argentina, right? Because they pulled out. <laughs> Let's give them time. Let's give them time. The, the, the fact that Argentina pulled out uh, is an interesting one. Uh, we're probably going to go back to that because uh, it's one of the signs that there is pushback mm. when it comes to this attempt to de-dollarize the economy, uh, including pushback from uh, global South countries. So uh, it's one of those examples, but I do believe that there are some other Latin American countries that would make a lot of sense uh, mm -hmm. uh, for BRICS. I'm thinking of Chile, Venezuela. I'm thinking of Colombia, mm -hmm. possibly Mexico. So mm -hmm. I think those, those are the countries that will be receiving an invitation uh, in a not-so-distant future. I would like to propose uh, um, a bit of an exotic uh, idea that uh, Turkey could be invited at some point. Turkey mm. is playing a very interesting role. It's part of NATO, as uh, most listeners know. Uh, it, it was, up until recently, a candidate to join the European Union. We all know that this is going nowhere. I mean, those negotiations are absolutely not making any progress at all. If anything, uh, they should have been buried officially a long time ago. And President Erdogan of Turkey is clearly indicating that he's willing to contribute to this reshuffling of the power cards globally. So let's, uh, let's see, but I would, um, I would wager that Turkey will be uh, somehow receiving an invitation. Yeah. You know, I never thought about it, but I, I do agree with you because Erdogan seems to have good relationships with a lot of these member states. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. He's, uh, he's doing at the level of Turkey what India has been doing since independence, mm -hmm. which is developing this posture of what we call in geopolitics uh, a strategic ambiguity. So this kind of systematic refusal to be on one side 
claiming their right to talk to whoever they want to be talking to. Look at what India is, has been doing since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, they refuse to impose sanctions on Russia. Uh, they keep buying oil from Russia, which they resell to Europe at double the price, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Turkey is playing that, kind of, uh, that same kind of role uh, with grain. Mm. Erdogan played a central role in the renegotiating of a grain deal to allow uh, Ukraine uh, cereals to leave uh, without being attacked by uh, by a uh, Russian military and to access their final markets, which are uh, Africa. And it enables Turkey to send a message to Africa, we are this middle power that guarantees your food security. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very powerful proposition. I was in Turkey recently for a Turkey-Africa Business and Economic Forum, mm -hmm. and I was amazed to see how much Turkey is making progress in terms of economic influence in sub-Saharan Africa. And they are capitalizing on the retreat from many European powers, first of, uh, first of which uh, is France, unfortunately, which has been uh, basically uh, indirectly targeted by many of the military coup that happened uh, last summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And I guess, I mean, trade has always been heavily politicized and, you know, economics as well. And that's why I like to really bring the geopolitics angle into this. But if we could take our conversation back a little bit, back to de-dollarization, um, what would be the implications, say, if this were to happen? Um, would this, how would this impact the global economy? Well, um, the US dollar is uh, and remains, and it's been like this since uh, uh, the implementation of the Bretton Woods uh, system right after the Second World War. Which was a fluke as well. Which was a fluke. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, it reflected the, the balance of power of the time. But that's precisely the message that China is trying to send. Uh, the fact that the US dollar is the preferred and in so many parts of the world, the exclusive currency for trade does not reflect the current balance of power anymore. Mm. And China is trying to change that, to forcibly change that. Um, it will take a lot of time. I'm not far from labeling full de-dollarization a white elephant type of phenomenon. Uh, I do not believe that this will be happening in its most complete form anytime soon. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if you allow me this, uh, this comparison, it's like a drug addict that you're trying to get out of crack or heroin. Uh, you have to go slow. Yeah or they may die. Mm. Economies will collapse if they try to wean themselves away from the US dollar. Yeah. Because in order to do that, you need to have currency reserves at the proper level held by your central bank to enable the financing of trade in other currencies. You need to have your commercial banks relearning the entire currency risk art, which is an art, in many ways. I mean, I've, I was managing money on financial markets during the subprime crisis. I was a macroeconomist right after the Southeast Asian crisis, the attack on the Thai baht, on the Malaysian ringgit. I can tell you that the level of volatility, it's impossible to manage. So those commercial banks will have to relearn how to do this. It will take a lot of time. Now, that being said, any attempt to go in that very ambitious direction is already a signal that is being sent that there is appetite for it, that there is a will to, by many, comp by many uh, economies, to free themselves from this domination of the US dollar. And I would like to remind another very important element, and it is one of the reasons why, for example, the likes of Iran wanted to join BRICS as early as possible, which they did. The US dollar is the main leverage that the United States has to impose sanctions, to impose economic sanctions mm -hmm. on whoever they want. If you 
move away from the US dollar, you're freeing yourself from those sanctions. This is exactly what Venezuela has tried to do recently. They, tried, they were proposing a, a kind of anti-sanction cryptocurrency that would enable all Venezuelan companies to get away from the long arm of the US Department of Justice. They, they actually uh, ended up abandoning the project a couple of days ago because they were nowhere near ready to actually manage that crypto. But the fact that they are trying it should be sending a very clear message to Washington and to many European uh, countries. Enough with this Pavlovian reflex of sanctions whenever we have a diplomatic squabble. Mm -hmm. You have to find another way. Because the more you do this, the more you create this will and this appetite to diversify away from the US dollar. Exactly. And which, this appetite is accelerating. Which is going to be painful as well, once if it does ever take effect. Um, so you mentioned diplomacy. And usually when I hear diplomacy, what comes to mind is the UAE. It seems to have figured out a way to kind of, you know, keep a lot of di diplomatic relations with lots of countries from around the world. You know, is um, their joining BRICS going to change that at all? Or is it going to make it even better? Um it's, um, it's an absolute thing of beauty, what the UAE has been doing diplomatically. I completely agree with you on this. Uh, they, they've managed, uh, and they are still managing at the height of uh, the current crisis, uh, this restart of, uh, of a full-out war between uh, Israel and Palestine, for example, and unfortunately some of the other conflicts that are maybe looming around, they're managing to be able to sit on the other side of the table with absolutely everyone on both sides of this new iron curtain that seems to be falling uh, on the globe. Um, it's, uh, it's a thing of beauty. It's, uh, it's sending a very powerful and very constructive message that as much as the United States and China are trying to coerce the rest of the world into belonging to one or the other side, there is still a way to do business with both. There is still a possibility to focus on building national resilience, which is exactly what the UAE is doing, national resilience, and how? By talking to the both sides of this Iron Curtain, whenever it makes sense for the UAE, whenever it serves the strategic interests of the UAE for the future. Uh, I think it's a model uh, in that sense. In many ways, uh, I used to work in Singapore, uh, there's often a comparison between the UAE and Singapore in that, uh, in that, in that regard. I would argue that the UAE is going much further than Singapore in that mm -hmm. way. Singapore is still, in spite of all the business it does uh, with China, it's still very clearly on the side of the US for many of the diplomatic issues. The UAE, by joining BRICS, is sending a very powerful message that we are a middle power to be reckoned with and we want to be able to talk to absolutely everybody who makes sense for us. And that includes the Chinese, that includes India, that includes Russia, if necessary, mm -hmm. as much as Europe and the US. Yeah. So I think it's a very interesting model, and it's probably giving a lot of hope in many capital cities to many governments who are wondering, how am I going to position myself in this new Cold War between China and the US, mm -hmm. where the UAE is showing you how? Definitely. And do you think, uh, say, members of BRICS like China or Russia could really learn from what the UAE has been doing diplomatically? Okay. Um, Some I, people are hoping this is going to rub on, <laughs> rub off, uh, you know, positively on other members of BRICS. I'm an optimist. Uh, not as optimistic I may not as be <laughs> as optimist uh, okay. on this. All right. Uh, I, I think the UAE can send a signal to those countries uh, that you've mentioned, China and Russia, uh, and the signal could be, the message could be, uh, 
um, do not coerce us. We are willing to talk to you. We are willing to deal with you when it makes sense for us, technology, financing of projects, whatever. Do not coerce us into a new ecosystem, okay? Mm -hmm. We are happy to, to explore opportunities, alternatives, different ecosystems, but the objective should not be to, to move us away from the US one to bring us into another one because yeah. then it would make no sense. And I exactly. think it's in this way that the likes of the UAE and also Saudi Arabia, to a certain extent, are sending a very interesting message to the entire global South. Yeah, definitely. I was very surprised. I mean, um, the BRICS members specifically, like India and China, they have a lot of issues between them. Um, the BRICS members, as they currently stand, you know, with the expansion, are very divided on so many mm -hmm. things, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, trade, economics, uh, their own views. Um, so, you know, do you think they're going to be able to work around that or is it going to take some time? Um, uh, I've heard a lot, and allow me to rephrase uh, your question, I've heard a lot uh, the criticism that BRICS has no spine. Exactly, yes. Well, my, uh, my reply usually is, does the European Union have a spine? What okay. <laughs> is the common point between Hungary, held, led by Viktor Orban, and France, led by Emmanuel Macron. The only common point is the euro currency. Everything else is not only different, but almost opposite. Mm -hmm. They have opposite views on absolutely everything, on the central bank policy. They have opposite views on fiscal policy. They have opposite, opposite views on immigration. They have opposite views on how to build industrial resilience. They have opposite views on the war in Ukraine. They have opposite views on absolutely everything. And wow. yet it works. Mm. So if, a, if the EU, with that absence of spine, that absence of coherence, can exist, I don't see why Brinks could not. And I would actually argue that Brinks has possibly a brighter future because it's less ambitious in the way it wants to function politically. As le at least as of now. Mm -hmm. BRICS is not talking about building a new federation of states. No. BRICS is certainly not discussing centralizing power outside of Moscow, outside of Beijing, outside of Delhi, outside of uh, Abu Dhabi, and place it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So BRICS, as things stand, of course, we'll see how it pans out and how it keeps developing, but BRICS, as things stand, leaves a lot of autonomy and a lot of freedom to operate to all its members, which the EU does not. So if we were wanting to draw a comparison, I would like to, uh, um, I would like to be uh, quite optimistic about this. I think BRICS is smart in the way that it's not overly ambitious in what it's proposing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They're setting this objective, de-dollarization, but I think we can all agree that the objective of BRICS is not to achieve that goal is to go in that direction, as far in that direction as possible. And any meter where you advance in that uh, direction of de-dollarization, however complete it is, it's already a victory. Mm -hmm. It's already a victory. So why not try it? Definitely. And I guess anyway, their main sort of uh, goal to come together would be for trade. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Trade, uh, collaboration on critical raw materials. It's something that is going to be extremely important. Yeah. When you look at uh, the, 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 the list of BRICS members and who controls what, look at China. 
more than 80% of known reserves of rare earth elements. Russia, largest, one of the largest producers of uh, oil, natural gas, and many of the metals that are, that are absolutely necessary for anything electric and electronic. Brazil, a food powerhouse. India, with many of the critical materials that absolutely needs, and this soft power that they have to actually get the oil from wherever and bypass sanctions. You're starting to have some interesting countries there. And when you look at the new members, you have the beginning of a list of the, the next powers for green hydrogen. Saudi Arabia, the UAE. I would like to see in the, uh, in the, um, in the next list of expansions, the likes of Morocco, for example. Mm -hmm. Morocco might be more difficult because they reaffirmed an Atlantic alignment recently. So we'll see what the king of Morocco decides. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if somebody discreetly knocks on their door uh, by the end of the year because Morocco is becoming very important for the development of, uh, of hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's very interesting. I never really looked at it in that way. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be surprised as well. <laughs> um, so, okay, I think we did, we discussed a lot of really interesting stuff, but I wanted to maybe get some more information about how you carry out your business when you're, like, how do you advise businesses, you know, with, you know, in terms of geopolitical risk, how does it work? What are the, the risks that they're faced with that they need to mitigate? So basically, um, uh, what, what we do is that we help uh, those companies understand the environment. So we do a lot of reports, uh, you know, writing on the, the, the ge very generic uh, geopolitical environment that companies are evolving in at the global, regional and local level. We do a lot of what we call uh, a weak signal identification. Uh, it's typically, uh, you know, those signals that could be that you could be picking up only if you monitor social media, for example. Mm -hmm. So, signals that population or part of the population in a certain country is starting to turn against you as a company, your brand, or the comp the country that you represent, because that's the problem of many companies, and that's what they need to understand in this day and age of hybrid warfare, so basically war between countries outside of the realm of the military, using the economy, trade, forex, the law, information warfare, etc. In this day and age, a company represents the country where it comes from, whether it likes it or not. We had a fantastic example of this with Huawei, yes. the Chinese telecom mm -hmm. giant that was attacked in the U.S., through its own CFO, who was arrested in Canada at the request of the U.S. Department of Justice, just because it's Huawei. And the idea of the U.S. DOJ was we can weaken China by attacking one of their champions in the tech sector. The Chinese did it in kind of retaliation to HSBC. HSBC has found itself uh, in the middle of what we call lawfare, warfare by using the law, and especially extraterritorial law, between China and the U.S. On the grounds that HSBC was forced by the DOJ to collaborate with the inquiry into Huawei. So China hit back. And how do you hit back? Well, you hit, you hit HSBC. Hit them where it hurts. Exactly. <laughs> and so more and more companies now are being targeted just because of the flag that flies on their headquarters. Do you think that's fair? It's not about whether it's fair or not. Mm -hmm. It's about whether it's going to be used against you to weaken the country that is behind you. Yeah. If, you have, if you are unfortunate enough to have become a champion 
in your country, a tech champion, you will be targeted as such mm. by the opposite government. Because by hitting you, they're hitting your government behind you. So we're helping companies understand that. Many of them have difficulties uh, accepting this very idea. Mm -hmm. Why should I be a target? I'm not a government. I'm a private company. Say, but it's not a matter of being a private company. You're too big. You've become one of the leaders. Look at uh, how the U.S. is weaponizing the Dutch company ASML. ASML is a Dutch company uh, that manufactures the only machine in the world that enables you to design semiconductors. Wow, that's The Chinese need it. Mm -hmm. The Taiwanese need it. The Americans need it. The Americans are weaponizing ASML by forcing the Dutch government to forbid ASML, which is a private company, to forbid them from selling their latest technology machines to China. The U.S. weaponizes a European company to weaken the Chinese semiconductor industry. My God. So we help those, uh, those companies understand this. Where do they fit? We help them map their stakeholders. We do a lot of stakeholder mapping exercises. I come from a business intelligence background, so we, so we do that. And the mapping exercise that we do, uh, you best believe that we de-zoom a lot. We tell them you must look at your stakeholders in civil society, at the government level. You have to stop thinking that your stakeholders are just your suppliers, your clients, your competitors. It goes way beyond that. Most of the attacks, most of the cases of economic warfare that happened, of course, they are piloted by your competitors or a foreign government, but they are, you're being struck most of the times by through civil society. NGOs, mm. concerned citizens, this annoying Instagrammer who keeps <laughs> bad-mouthing you, your product. Yeah. Very often we discover that it's another corporate interest behind or maybe a foreign government behind. Mm. So we help them understand this. Uh, we do a lot of what we would call geopolitical stress tests on companies' business models. How, uh, how weak are you in that particular geography? How exposed are you to this particular nature of geopolitical risk? So we do a bit of you know, auditing on, uh, on the, on the ge geopolitical risk. And we do prospective scenario. Let's try. We don't have a crystal ball at Confluence Consultants. I wish we did, but uh, we don't have it. Uh, what we do have is the skills and the methodology to do scenario analysis, scenario gaming. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we did one recently uh, about Turkey. Uh, a few uh, weeks before uh, the presidential election that saw President Erdogan being re-elected, we played around with some experts uh, with different credible scenarios. And every time we say, this is the type of macroeconomic impact, fiscal impact, trade impact, currency impact that this could have on any company operating in Turkey or looking to operate in Turkey in the near future. So this way we are able to advise them on how risky and fluid the environment, the environment, the global environment is, and how they can prepare for it, uh, uh, you know, uh, mitigate the risk, uh, possibly take other types of actions to compensate whatever loss they might incur. Uh, but the, the main, I would say, the main uh, message that we're sending to companies is get your scenario gaming right. Because if you get your scenario gaming right, you are ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. Don't wait until the bomb explodes. Don't wait until there's a new revolution in that country that accounts for 40% of your business, you better anticipate this and have 
uh, you know, business continuity plans. Many companies, I, I used to work in Asia, as I said earlier, uh, and a lot in Japan. Many companies have business continuity plans when it comes to uh, natural disasters, even acts of terror. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to hybrid warfare, most of those companies have no clue because they don't even know how to pick up the weak signals of what is an act of economic warfare from civil society using the law or the norms and standards or the regulations, etc. So we help them uh, get better at this so that they can really beef up their anticipation uh, skills uh, to avoid being caught on the wrong side. Mm-hmm. And um, this might be a silly question, but I'm curious to There's know. Since... Silly question. <laughs> okay, yeah, because you're a lecturer as well, right? Exactly. <laughs> Um, so how much has your, you know, advising kind of changed, uh, you know, since the expansion of BRICS, at least your work here in the UAE or in the wider region? Well, we're getting more and more requests uh, on how interesting would it be for us, a foreign company, and by foreign, I mean, not from the GCC area, uh, to settle in the UAE or in Saudi Arabia or, or both and use those geographies as stepping stones for other regions. This is really the message that I believe is sinking, and that tags uh, into uh, um, the Vision 2030 uh, that came out of Saudi Arabia, making this region a stepping stone. There is There are things to be done domestically because of the size of the markets and what's happening in terms of uh, technology development, etc. But it's also an extremely important stepping stone stone for the rest of the region. We have many more companies now who are approaching, for example, the UAE uh, as a final step before Africa or before the South Asian continent. India, Pakistan, etc. So we are advising more and more on this, how you can use those geographies as stepping stones, you know, to do warehousing, some of, in, in some cases to actually do part of the production here before you re- re-export elsewhere. Because the beauty of it, the beauty of the GCC is that we still have a very high degree of visibility into what's going to be happening next. Uh, we know who's going to be the next leader. Mm-hmm. In most of the countries here, there is visibility on this. We because know who's going to be groomed. Emerging market, is that why it's easier for you? It's not because it's emerging market that it's easier. It's because those are countries that give foreign uh, investors a lot of transparency mm-hmm. on what their aims are, on what their plans are. So you know who you're going to be dealing with 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road. There is this level of transparency, Mm -hmm. uh, which we don't have, uh, for example, in Africa, obviously, uh, where things change extremely fast. I mean, how many people were anticipating the three or four military coup that happened last summer in sub-Saharan Africa? Very few people were able to anticipate that. So it's difficult to to see who's going to be the person I speak to one year down the road in Ministry X or Ministry Y. At least in the GCC, you know, you have this visibility. So it's a kind of a safe haven in the region with what's happening uh, between uh, Israel and, uh, and Palestine and Gaza, what happened uh, uh, last night and the night before between Iran and Pakistan. We are in a place here where you can do business with a, level, with a fair level of certainty. Uh, and it's going to become more and more attractive going forward. Even Europe, we're starting to lack this visibility, which we used to enjoy before. Who's able to say whether the Italian government is going to stay in power for another two or three years? Who's able to say who's going to replace Macron in France because he cannot run again? It's extremely difficult these days. Who was able 
to anticipate that Gerd Wilders would win the elections in the Netherlands? Not me. <laughs> Very few I people didn't are. I think he would win, but... So this is exactly why, why the UAE and the GCC in general is extremely interesting for multinational companies these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a huge influx now in Saudi as well with, uh, you know, the regional headquarters program. And, um, you know, they just clarified now the... There's also the first ever um, civil transaction code as well, which mm -hmm. is helping businesses to sort of understand what what Absolutely. they can do. And Absolutely. then, yeah, and then there's also the new visas as well. Absolutely. The premium residency and Absolutely. the golden visa here as well. So, yeah. we And if I may, Tala, uh, because listeners might be thinking of alternatives, uh, other countries that, tip to, uh, that seem to tick those boxes, and I know that the listeners are thinking about Singapore, the beauty of the UAE and Saudi Arabia is that operating costs remain manageable for multinational Compared companies, which is not the case in Singapore. Uh -huh. Singapore has become so expensive to operate from. And I think uh, the UAE has been benefiting uh, from that uh, trend uh, quite a lot. They've, they've seen a lot of expats asking to be transferred from Singapore to the UAE. Um, the fact that the UAE managed COVID the way it did sent a very powerful message. No lockdowns. That was a very powerful message. Mm -hmm. I've heard recently some heads of hedge funds who are coming to Abu Dhabi. This was their number one reason to set up in Abu Dhabi. Because they're saying, next time it happens, we won't be locked up at home. We can still operate fairly normally, which was not the case, as much the case in Singapore. Mm -hmm. So all those together, it gives the UAE an edge over the likes of Singapore as well. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything you'd like to add before we end the episode? Tala, I would like to thank you, first of all, for this opportunity. It was a real pleasure. And I would like to remind, uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, owners of companies who may be listening to this podcast that um, the, the one thing you must be looking at uh, is geopolitics. Uh, um, it's, it's becoming much more important than understanding what the central banks are doing, what fiscal policy is going to be about. Uh, geopolitics will hit you where it hurts and absolutely everywhere if your company is not prepared, equipped and trained to anticipate those events and to build uh, contingencies for those. So I would really, really want to hammer down this message. Um, for people like me, uh, these days are extremely interesting. Uh, because it's uh, it's actually removing the need to actually try to convince people that geopolitics is important. Uh, what they need to do now is to be willing to invest in those skills, uh, in those systems, in those some, some of the time it could be information systems as well, uh, and understand this because um, it's going to be even more difficult this year, 2024. I think the very few weeks already, it's what, January 18? Yeah. We may have a new front opening up already. I mean, we need to be following up very closely uh, at this uh, Iran versus Pakistan thing that is unfolding uh, before our eyes. And it's only January 18. So this is what I would like to uh, Unbelievable. Add. Yeah, it's only the third week of the year. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much again. And thank you for, for coming in. I know you're only in the UAE for a couple of days. So it's really, we're really lucky to catch you while you were here. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Tala. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and thank you to all our subscribers. Sign up to arabianbusiness.com for all exclusive content. Music